So, um, last week we talked, or I was presenting to you uh, a message about faith and finances, why our giving is important to God, all right? And, and so I want to keep that going, and I think it'll probably take this morning and probably next week to wrap this all up, because the Bible has a great deal to say about the importance of giving. Let me get a little sip here. A great deal about giving, and we're not talking about just simply money. We're talking about time, talking about talents, abilities, possessions, your goals, your dreams, your life, your desire, everything. God is looking for all those things to be placed on the altar in submission to him. That's what it means for him to be God, or that's what it means for him to be Lord of our lives. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say, right? It's just, it's a, it's a contradiction in terms. So we're talking about everything, and I, I think it's important uh, for me to teach what the Word of God says about the whole um, matter of giving, faith and finances, uh, especially because we have new people that are coming to church. We're delighted that you're here, and a big part of the whole process of becoming a disciple and maturing and growing into spiritual maturity has everything to do with learning what the Word of God says, and then putting it into practice and finding out that it bears fruit, it works. Even we are singing that song before, and I was just was really feeling where Peter was coming from, and having been there any number of times over the course of years, and being, you know, like having no other thing to put your hopes in or trust in other than God himself, and seeing how he's brought us through these uh, about 43 years now. Hallelujah. 43 years of walking with the Lord, and no, he won't fail. So we want to teach what biblical living is all about, or biblically-based living, especially to those who are new in our midst. And a big part of that is uh, learning, okay, what about this matter of giving? Do I, you know, should I just, whatever I happen to have in my pocket that week, that's what God has sovereignly preordained for me to give? Or should it be a little more organized? And we're going to talk about that and uh, try to give some substance to that. Um, as we as we go forward uh, in this teaching here this morning, um, so before I get into the uh, the specifics of let's say what the standard would happen to be, because the other standard the the idea of just like okay I happen to have reminds reminds me of a joke that I can probably tell some of you have heard the joke but um, the, we have new people so I can I can tell all my lame jokes all over again and you know they'll, they'll still get annoyed. My dad was like that. My dad was the mailman at Rockaway Town Square Mall. And the turnover of, cli- of the people who worked there. And my dad was a real jokester. And he loved to go around and just tell jokes. And uh, uh, one, time, one time, one lady, that w- my mom also worked at the mall. One time, a lady that uh, had gotten to know my mom got, went up to my mom and she said, I didn't know that was your husband. She said, i got to tell you something. When I first met your husband, I smiled at him. <laughs> and my mom says, nothing. First time I met him, I laughed out loud. Anyway, but there's the, the story of the three bills that were going into retirement. So they were being taken out of circulation. Does anybody remember this one? You can zone out. Okay, Bill's got this one down. All right. So there's a $100 bill, there's a $50 bill, and there's a $1 bill. And they're all preparing to be burned up. And, and so they're, they're having a conversation. And the, the 50 says to the 100, well, how'd it go while you're out there? So the $100 bill says, oh, the best, man. 
went everywhere, all the best restaurants, theaters, movies, everything, you know, the, the finest, finest places to eat, finest programs and shows. How about you? I said, yeah, yeah, it was really good. You know, I went to a lot of really good places and, and saw a lot of good uh, restaurants. And, 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 and uh, so they both turned to the, to the $1 bill and said, how'd it go for you? And he said, uh, church to church to church to church. <laughs> So, you know where we're coming from here this morning. Anyway, so um, <clears throat> before we get into the specifics, I want to go back because in the course of this 21-day thing that we've been doing here in, in January, um, I brought up the Sermon on the Mount a number of times. Uh, and because the, the Sermon on the Mount talks about when you pray, when you give, when you fast, and it gives a principle over all those things. It says, the Father who sees in secret shall reward you openly. And so all of those things are part of um, what it means, what, what the normal Christian life is, to pray, to fast, to give, are all part of all of this, as are many other things. And because I was referring to the Sermon on the Mount, I'd like to go back um, because the Sermon on the Mount is so important. Now, this is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So if you want to go back and reference that, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 um, is what we conventionally call the Sermon on the Mount. It starts with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the more, but all of those, uh, of course, maybe sometime we will. We'll just t- take some time to go through it. But it is, in essence, the gospel of the kingdom. It is the upgrade it is the essence of what is the difference between being an Old Testament believer, being part of uh, Israel, and being a New Testament believer, being part of the church. And in it, Jesus is defining why his ministry is an upgrade from the, from the, um, the, minist- from the, uh, the whole worship structure of the Jewish people. And it raises the standard in every aspect and in every way. The things that Jesus has to say raises the old, takes the Old Testament standard and takes it to a new level. Um, so here's the introductory statement. There we go. Let me just get another little sip here. Okay. And again, sometimes we get caught up in this idea, well, we're no longer under law, but we're under grace. And that's absolutely true. But Everything in the Word of God is there for instruction and edification. So nothing, I mean, in other words, you would not be a wise person to take the Old Testament and throw it away because it's no longer relevant, because you're, you're no longer uh, under law, but you are under grace. That would be terribly unwise. And notice how Jesus connects these two things as he introduces us really to the whole body of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now hear this sentence. For I tell you, 
that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's quite a statement. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now here's something that you should know and probably do know. The Pharisees were extremely scrupulous concerning all matters about the law. This is, this is kind of what, this was their whole identity. That they were, every little um, jot until every little thing, they would, they would make sure that no one was violating the law in any way because it was so foundational, so central to, um, to the whole Jewish life and to the whole covenant with God. And they were particularly um, scrupulous about the matter of tithing. Okay, and that's, we want to get into that today and talk about, okay, what is Old Testament tithing all about? How does that, is that applicable for us today? And uh, so notice what Jesus says when he, when he is confronting the scribes and Pharisees. He makes this statement to them. To, again, just to show you how scrupulous they were. And also to see what the New Testament, what Jesus has to say about the, their practice of tithing. Take a, take a look at this verse of Scripture. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, cumin, and have cumin, cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Okay, now, what he is saying is, you guys are so fastidious about your, fa about your tithing that if you get like a little bag of mint, you're going to go and weigh out one-tenth of that bag of mint and make sure it goes to the temple, right? Or if you get, you know, the, all, all of these are just spices. Imagine, you know, think of your spice cabinet, okay? And this morning, if you walked by your spice cabinet, you said, gee, i got to tithe my spices at the church so you you know you pour it out on, on some little scale and then take one tenth of that and take it off and put it on a little piece of I don't know aluminum foil or something some of you wonder what you're carrying around there and bring it to church and then when the uh, you know back in the offering plate come in and put your tithe of mint or cumin or whatever else dill okay or all these little spices so that's how that's how particular they were being regarding this matter of tithing Every little thing that they were increased by, they would make sure that God got 10% of that. Now, here's the language that the Lord Jesus uses to upgrade the Old Testament practices um, and move things from the, the covenant that was grounded in law to the covenant that now will be grounded in grace. John chapter 1 says, For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So it's important that we understand both. As a matter of fact, it's not until you really understand law that you really can appreciate grace. You know that? That is, that is absolutely true. Anyway, so the language that the Lord Jesus uses in terms of all of these different uh, matters by which, or, or which he is upgrading, he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, if you remember, there's another spot in the Bible where people 
are listening to Jesus, and it says, no one ever taught uh, like this. Jesus taught as one that had authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees. The others taught because they would go back, check the commentaries, well, you know, um, this particular leader or this particular rabbi or this particular teacher had said this, and basically they were, they were just pulling up all of the different opinions that had developed over the years, and Jesus wasn't pulling on anybody's old opinions. Jesus is saying, this is what people have been telling you, this is what the law says, but this is what I say unto you. And it kind of brings everything up to a brand new standard. Notice I've got a whole bunch of examples that we'll go through quickly here. In uh, Matthew, all of these are from Matthew chapter 5, and you'll get the point. So the first one has to do with murder. Okay, here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Okay? Is that an upgrade? Big time, right? In other words, it's one thing to actually kill somebody. It's another thing to hate somebody and want to kill them, but just not to be able to. And, and Jesus says whatever, all of these matters are matters of the heart. Second one. These are all in Matthew chapter 5. And this is adultery. You know this one, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Not that anyone here might have ever done any such thing. But you can see that this whole thing is moved forward. The, the, the bar has been raised, okay? How about divorce? Here's what Jesus has to say in terms of the new... Um, the New Covenant. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. Okay, the standard has just gone way north. The next one has to do with oaths or what we would swear, promises, you know, if, if we would make an oath or, or, or swear to something. They swear to God that that's true, right? To try to emphasize that we are telling the truth. Jesus says, again, you have heard it said, um, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Now, some people take this far into court and, you know, they'll affirm, the, uh, put their hand in the Bible and affirm as opposed to swear um, I, don't, I think that's kind of uh, nitpicking, the whole idea. But the idea simply being that we shouldn't need anything to validate or verify what we say. We should just say the truth. And then if we say the truth, it doesn't need. We don't need to swear to it or, or give an oath. But again, you, you get the point. That in all of these different things, it, w it has always been like this, Jesus says. But I'm telling you, this is where it is right now. This is, the, uh, this is now the new standard. Here's another one, eye for eye. Okay, Jesus says... You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And he talks about if someone goes, takes you to court and wants to sue you for your shirt, give them your cloak as well. And if somebody um, is forcing you to walk a mile, walk two miles with them. In other words, go beyond the standard. Okay, so he's raising the bar. Here's another, all, all in chapter 5. And I'm, I'm doing this because I just want to, to 
get across this idea that uh, the, uh, what is the difference between Old Testament and New Testament and see that the teaching of Jesus brings, thing in, brings things into a whole, new, um, a whole new light or a whole new level. Okay, and here's the last one of these. Um, Jesus is teaching about having love for one's enemies. And he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So when Jesus is saying, but I say unto you, he is adding a whole new perspective, a whole new dimension, a whole new attitude or predisposition toward the will of God, toward doing the will of God. Doing it not out of, let's say, slavish obedience, but understanding its value and its significance and then entering into it far more from the heart. There's a passage, I think, in Thessalonians where Paul was praising these people from Thessalonica. He says, I praise you because you obeyed from the heart. And, and, and so that's characteristic of, of, becoming, of being a born-again New Testament believer, that obedience comes and arises out of the heart rather than just some perfunctory obedience that I give because there's some law that says I have to do this. The wonderful part of all of it is that there isn't any law anymore. If the law by nature requires obedience, just like if you're driving down the road and you're breaking the speed limit and you're breaking the law. If you happen to be seen and pulled over, you will get a ticket because that's the nature of law. Okay, if you violate it, uh, there are consequences. The law of God has been superseded by the manifestation of the grace of God. And we'll... That doesn't always seem to be something that everybody gets a handle on. But it's very important in this context, um, so, and, and particularly in this context of giving. So the Old Testament law is set aside. Why? Because it did not have the power to produce righteousness. It did not have the power to produce the kind of attitude that God wants to see in us regarding all of these different matters. It just simply made, turned us into people who had to do something, I've often likened it to, a gun to the head. Okay, the law was a gun to the head. So if you, if you break the law, pow. Okay, that's what the Old Testament law was. And so people did obey, but they obeyed because they were under duress. They were, they were being required to. That's one thing. Just like if a person puts a gun to your head, I think that most of us will do whatever that person's asking me to do because they got a gun to my head. In the New Testament, God has taken that gun away. So that it, and now it's like, let's see what you're really all about. That is God's attitude toward every one of us. It's, it's actually the irony of the law. It is the deep irony of grace that there is no more law and so I now am free to do what I want, and God is saying, all right, let's see what you're really all about. And so it puts me infinitely more on the hook in terms of my life and the way, the way I live my life before God than the law did, because the law was a requirement. Grace is like an invitation. So... Um, the law never had the power to produce righteousness. It has... Uh, it only has power to, con it had no power to control. It had, the, it, it, 
it, I'm sorry, it only had power to control. It only had power to convict of what was bad. It had no power to cultivate what is good. One of these days I had a, a thought that, that came, and I was sharing it a little bit with the guys on Wednesday night. By the way, you'd be, it, you, you, you would be so blessed to be a part of the Wednesday night Bible study. Can I put a little shameless plug? Okay. Right, you would be. It is such a blessing to get together with the ladies and the men, and and and, and just it. It is just such a life-giving time. That's all. The, the, you know, we we're we're able to converse about what's going on in our lives and what's going on. You know, and and how we understand the Word of God. So I want to encourage you to get out for a Wednesday night. But I was saying that. <clears throat> Sorry. That a thought came. Um, that I thought this make a great couple of messages. Christianity, correcting vice or cultivating virtue. Ponder that for a second. Is Christianity correcting vice or cultivating virtue? Well, you'll say both, and it is. Which one is more important? Cultivating virtue. Okay, that's really the Christ-likeness. It's one, so, so if my Christianity is constantly a sense of like, oh, i got to stop that, I can't be doing that anymore, and I'm constantly in this process of feeling condemned and convicted and all of that, and I'm always living on that side of that equation, it's time to move out. It's time to not only live in the cognizance of, okay, all of us are sinners, we understand this, all of us do wrong, we understand this is all part of who we are, it's a simple, uh, realistic acknowledgement of who we are before the Lord. But we are now in a process whereby in grace, we are, the Lord wants to cultivate virtue in us. So he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. My computer just went off. Okay, so anyway. So the law had only had power um, to convict, but it never had power to cultivate the kind of life or the kind of lifestyle that, um, that God wants to build up in us. One more statement, and this one is really important because this, this statement is uh, found in Acts chapter 4, and it shows how profoundly the first century church or the, the, uh, the, the initial church was affected by the life and the example of our Lord Jesus. This is right after, in Acts chapter 4, they're, uh, they're entering to a time of persecution. It says they all got together, they all prayed, the place itself was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is the statement that follows. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, is that an amazing statement or what? Right? This, this was how profoundly, how radically they had, been, um, they had been impressed by the example and the life of Jesus that they completely kind of gave up the idea that anything was personally their own anymore. Everything was available to the Lord. That's a New Testament mindset. 
That's a New Testament mindset concerning finances, concerning time, concerning talents, concerning ability. Everything belongs to God. Just missed a great opportunity. Thank you. We, okay? So this was how radically the example of Christ impacted them. So the work of the Holy Spirit in us is to actually create this family resemblance, to make us like the Father, to make us like the Lord Jesus, right? Like he's in that one that we uh, read before, where he says uh, that you may be the children of your Father. For he, I, This I say to you, that you should love your enemies, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. For he makes, his rain, it makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, sends forth rain on the just and on the unjust. Be you, therefore, or you be therefore perfect or mature in the same way as your heavenly father is perfect so the idea is that we as god's kids now would be transformed to take on the family resemblance so um last week um i made this statement you haven't come to the starting point or to the essence of becoming a new testament believer and follower of christ until you have come to know god as giver as long as you know God as judge, as long as, as long as your primary thought of God is judge or somebody who wants to kill joy or somebody that wants to like undermine your, your happiness or anything like that, you haven't come to know the Lord yet. And it is essential that every person come to know the Lord as giver. I'll bring up three verses we, um, we looked at last week. Because by nature, we tend to think of God as kind of a tyrant, somewhat of a bully, this big guy that's just waiting to press the smite button. Right? Just, you know, one more time, Wallison. One more time, baby. <laughs> right? And, and this, this is kind of a natural concept that we have of God. And, and that has to be completely eradicated. So to get a relationship going with God, the first thing I have to do is come to know him as a giver, not a taker. That everything that he's about is about giving. Notice these uh, three verses that you, uh, I'm sure you do know well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Another one says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gift of God. In other words, we have to first realize that God is trying to get me to accept and to receive something that I can never be worthy of, that I can never earn, that I can never pay him back for. It's so, it's, it, it, it's so amazing what God has given, because it's not even as if, you know, it, it was some material thing. It's, uh, it, it, he gave himself. He gave his only begotten son. He gave Christ Jesus to give his life on our behalf. Paul puts it this way. We've looked at this a number of times. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And that's um, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to be going back there because that's, that's probably the, the most important New Testament passage having to do with giving and how it's supposed to work in us. So it's only um, as we begin to grasp the inexpressible, unspeakable, too wonderful for words gift that God has graciously provided that we can begin to understand who God truly is. So regarding this whole issue of tithing, and we understand, or I hope that you understand, tithing means one-tenth. Okay, in the Old Testament, it was a requirement. Um, actually, there were there were 
it was much more than one-tenth because there were three different tithes that were taken. One was for the maintenance of the temple, one was for the um, maintenance of the priesthood, and another was for the poor. Uh, now, the one for the poor was taken every third year. So in essence, the Old Testament tithe was actually 23.3%. Scared? But just so that we would know. So, um, when, it, so when it comes to our giving... To think, well, what's the least I can do? Or what's, what's the basic that I can do? Or what's the minimum that I can give and still be okay with God? What I can tell you, there is, a, there is a, a, an important answer to this question. You can give nothing and still be a believer. Okay? You can never give a dollar for the rest of your life to anything having to do with church, and you will still be accepted by God. But you will miss you will miss out on everything if our minds, if I'm thinking in that way, the truth is I really don't get it yet. Now that, can, that kind of sounds a bit of a snarky statement. You just don't get it. You know how that, that, that is used. And I'm not meaning it like that or some condescending fashion, but it just means that if I am still chafing over giving to God, I have missed the point badly, badly. Because based upon what he has given on my behalf, here's what, here's what I got on the table here, Steve, and you're going to have to receive that gift. You want to go, if, if you want to get anywhere with me, you're going to have to start by receiving this gift. And then once I receive the inexpressible, too wonderful for words gift that God has given, thanks be to God that God has given this, this inexpressibly wonderful gift, that sets the tone. So am I going to sit there and like negotiate? with God, right? It, it, again, it, just, it means that I just don't get it. What we should be asking is, how can I give more? All right? Now, I'm not trying to get any money out of anybody's pocket here today, okay? But, but if we understand the nature of what the New Testament is, the question would be, how can I give more? This is the most important thing that exists on planet Earth. How can I do more? I was reading about this guy named R.G. Letourneau. R.G. Letourneau was a businessman who um, had made all of this heavy equipment. Uh, uh, there's a book called uh, Moving, Moving Men and Machines. And the guy made, he, he was like, like earth mover type of equipment. He made, I think, or designed three quarters of the heavy-duty equipment that was used in the Second World War. He created a bulldozer. If you, the, the guy's life in terms of being an entre entrepreneur and, a, um, and an inventor was incredible. And, and, and many people give him credit and his machinery credit for the victory that we um, had in the Second World War. R.G. Letourneau was a, a committed believer, and he decided... He was going to flip the whole process of tithe. He was going to give God 90%, and he was going to keep 10. I'll show you the video maybe next week. It's really quite an amazing story. If you look that, that name up, R.G. Letourneau, you'll see like when a person got the, got the message, like, how can I do more? Because this thing here, this the kingdom and the work and the church and all this, this is the most important thing that exists on planet Earth. Everything else is going to burn. Right? It's all going to be gone. And so I get this wonderful opportunity to invest everything I can. Should I put a, should I put a particular number on that? No, not particularly. Although you might, you might start with something like this concept of tithing. Tithing meaning one-tenth. So now usually any, any message about 
giving, we're tithing in particular, um, will bring us to the famous text. It will allow us to go and visit our brother Malachi, who we don't really visit very often because he's just this little guy squished at the end of the Old Testament. Um, it's kind of, a, it, it's not the most fun book to read, but we do sure want to bring that text out when it's time to talk about tithing, giving, and stuff like that. So let's do that. <clears throat> and uh, just to set this up, Malachi is the last prophetic voice in the Old Testament. He's at the end of the Old Testament. He's the last book. He li- he, he's on the scene around 400 years before Jesus comes on the scene. Um, it's a very solemn book. And, and, and the book, if you read it, you can kind of read it probably like less than a half an hour. And it is, it, 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 the book reads like a divorce, okay? It reads as if, I have the mental picture of this long, long, long table. And God's at one end, and he, you can barely see him down there. And I, as a person of Israel, am, a, you know, like, am representative of, of Israel. I'm on the other I'm on the other end. And, you know, we're, ju- we're just not communicating. We're just not able to, to communicate with one another. Here's the opening verse, just to give you a feel for it. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob. But Esau, I have hated. Now that's just, that's the opening verse, okay? God sits down and says, I have loved you. And they go, what? How have you loved us? They're not seeing, they're they're not um, recognizing any aspect of God's love. It's, and this is really the first and probably the most basic, uh, or the basis for a whole number of grievances that God is going to bring to the table that he has to talk to Israel about. He says, hey, listen, as I understand it, I'm your father and you're my kids. Well, if I am your father and you are my kids, where's my honor? Because as the way it's supposed to work is children are supposed to honor their father, but you have failed to honor me. They're offering second-rate sacrifices. Okay, they are bringing to the temple um, things to fulfill the offerings that they're supposed to give, but they're bringing the lame. They're bringing the diseased. They're bringing the... So they're, they're bringing whatever is convenient. That's an important thing. In terms of giving, that's an important statement as well. They were just bringing whatever was convenient. And so God said, I, I, I see what you're up to. Instead of bringing me your best... You're bringing me what works for you. And so that might be a blind animal or a lame animal or a diseased animal. Remember what David said when this guy, uh, Aruna the Jebusite, you remember Aruna the Jebusite. (laughs) When Aruna the Jebusite, David wants to offer to God a sacrifice. And Aruna, Aruna the Jebusite happens to own the piece of property in Jerusalem where the Temple Mount is built today. It was, at the times, this is long before any temples were ever built, it was a threshing floor. It is a big rock ledge. That's why they built it right there. And it was a place where people would go up and they'd take their wheat and they would, um, you know, go through the whole process of throwing it up so the chaff would blow off so that the wheat would be retained. It was a threshing floor that Aruna the Jebusite owned. And Aruna the Jebusite says, David wants this piece of property? I'll give it to him. He can have it for nothing. What does David say? 
I'm not going to give to the Lord something that costs me nothing, right? That's an important, that, that is another important concept behind giving as well. Give, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. It only begins to matter when it costs. Jesus is sitting there watching this lady at the, watching people throw their money into this collection box. Fifteen, more than that. Yeah. No, a thousand years after we're talking about this whole Arun of the Jebusite thing. And Jesus is there at the temple and he's watching people throw in their money. Here comes this lady. She drops in what apparently is something, a couple of pennies or something like that. And Jesus says, you see that lady? She just gave more than everybody. Oh, the other people are coming in, big parade, big fanfare, big show, <laughs> right? Of how much they're giving and how they're doing. He says, this lady gave all that she had. And so the, the idea is we're not really giving until we are giving... Um, um, that which costs. Okay. So, um, there, another, another issue in this book of Malachi. Um, they say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and where is the God of justice? The people in this book of Malachi are being unfaithful to their wives. They are condoning easy divorce. Families are breaking down. God is annoyed about this. He want, This needs to stop this easy sense of um, easy divorce. And five times in this book, the concept of covenant is mentioned, and each time God accuses them of violating every aspect of this covenant that they, are, that they, are, uh, alleged, that they believe that they are living in together with, with God. <clears throat> but the reason, the real reason that we like to summon up Malachi is because there is the strong statement in, in chapter 3 about the tithe. Okay, love this statement. All preachers love this statement. <laughs> So let's go to that. For I, the Lord, do not change. Now, again, all those other things I said, that's the tone of the whole book. God says, hey, you're cheating me here. How are we cheating you? Here's what God says about this particular matter. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Okay, you see the whole tone here? <clears throat> In your tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil or your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will... Be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this passage is Old Testament. This concept is Old Testament. And if I were to stand here and tell you this morning that you are obligated to give a tenth or a tithe of your money, I would be teaching you something false, okay? Because this whole concept of tithe is rooted in and connected in the Old Testament covenant. It was the means by which it, it was actually more than an offering. It was a tax. Nobody, nobody gave a tithe, you paid a tithe. Big difference, okay? You brought the tithe. 
You didn't give. That wasn't something that you had at your discretion. They brought it. They paid it, like, just like you pay your taxes. Okay, this was the same way that it worked. <clears throat> so this passage is Old Testament. This concept of tithing, per se, is an Old Testament concept. But it is not irrelevant. That's what I really would like in terms of this. We're, I'm kind of running out of time here. It is not ir irrelevant. It has important lessons to teach us, although we are not legally bound with this aspect of the tithe. It is no longer a gun to my head. It, but it, is meant, it was meant to teach the people of Israel that everything belonged to God. That's the simple lesson beneath the whole thing, that everything that they had belonged to God. So whether it was a bag of mint, or cumin, or dill, or you know what I mean? Right on down the line, whatever they had that they were increased by, God was saying, I get, I get a taste. I give it to use a Tony Soprano. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> so they were not legally bound. We should be glad that the tithe is Old Testament, because <clears throat> if not, there are a lot of people here this morning that would be in trouble and would be under a curse from God. I remember listening to John Hagee one time, and he was preaching, and he was saying, some of you drove to, car, drove to church this morning in stolen vehicles, <laughs> and you're wearing stolen clothes, and you're living in a stolen house. But you say, how am I driving in a stolen vehicle? Right? But again, if you go back to what God is saying to these people, you've robbed me. And, and, and now here was the thing. In their <clears throat> unwillingness to be faithful to what they had, to um, commit to God what belonged to him, right? God had then withheld rain from them so that their crops weren't growing. He said then to them, you're under a curse. Now what I would say in terms of this whole thing and applying it to the New Testament, that is still in play. In other words, and, and if we, when we get to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, um, the same, Paul will make the same statement. He says, whoever sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. That's a whole different concept than you better give 10%, Lucy, or you're in big trouble. Right? It's a whoever sows sparingly is going to reap. What kind of blessings do you want to receive in your life? Sparing ones or bountiful ones? Okay, you and I are the ones who are setting this up. Okay, that is so important. So again, the law itself is not the matter here, but the principle is of great importance because you can't outgive God, and, and, and you and I are setting the whole tone. God has set the standard. He said, Here's what I'm giving my son. What do you got? And so this is kind of the, the basic. So I, I just wanted to go back to this Old Testament concept because when God is saying to them, look, at you, you're living under a curse. And that's not good to be under a curse from God. I know different people question this whole value of can a, can a Christian actually be cursed? And I believe, no, you cannot. I, I do not believe that anybody can put a curse on you. Remember the first verse or third verse in the first chapter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. No one can come along, your neighbor who doesn't like you, who you think is probably a witch or a warlock or something like that, and you've been walking around and maybe all of a sudden you caught a cold and you think they cursed me. Or some person at work, they cursed me. No, no one can curse what God has blessed. 
That's what Balaam found out in the Old Testament, but that's a whole other story. But God's blessing is on you, and he wants that blessing to multiply and to increase in every way. And the way that whole thing um, uh, takes on some momentum is because God has given, and I'm a giver, and God gave more. And, and this, whole, this whole process of reciprocity in which we are, we are just giving to God out of a cheerful, this is, this is why he says in that passage of Scripture, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves it when out of our heart, when out of our spirit, there is a delight and a joy, realizing that I am getting a chance to invest in the most important thing that is ever going to be. I'm investing in the kingdom of God. I'm investing in the evangelization of human beings. I'm investing in the salvation of human beings. And everything that I got, I want to put on the table. How about you? All right. So we're going to leave it right there. And we'll come back next week and we'll talk more about um, where this takes us. Uh, and, and again, I, th I think you know this. Um, you know that I'm not interested in, you know, getting a new Rolex or the Pastor Steve Lamborghini fund or, you know, all of that, right? But I am, I, I, this is all important to teach and preach because the blessing of each individual in this, um, in, in our fellowship here, in our community, is hinging on getting a handle on this. Amen. <laughs>